Welcome to GovCast, connecting with federal IT's top decision makers. I'm Alexander Bolova, production lead at GovCIO Media and Research. With me today is deputy editor, Kate Macri. Hi, Kate. Hey, Alex. You had the opportunity to chat with Don Yeski, CTO at the Department of the Navy. How'd it go? It was a great conversation, and it was almost a little bit of an exit-style interview. I feel like it kind of veered that way towards the end because Don is leaving the Department of the Navy. I think his last day is June 16th, and he's going to DHS, and he's heading up a new office there, which I'm not going to talk about here because you'll learn about it more in the episode. Yeah, well, it sounds like we caught Don Yeski at just the right time. I'm sure, as you said, he'll be going into some more details about his upcoming role. But is there anything about his current position that you want to highlight before we listen? Yeah, so he was in a really cool position. Well, I guess at the time of this recording, he is still CTO of the Department of the Navy. And that's a really important position to be in right now because the Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability contract was officially awarded at the end of calendar year 2022. So this year is all about, you know, trying to figure out how the different services and DoD components are going to incorporate JWCC into their current cloud modernization efforts. And obviously that's a very big undertaking, big challenge. And it was really interesting to hear how Don's been navigating that and what he sees as the big challenges, what he thinks will go well, that kind of stuff, especially as the Navy and the rest of the services try to use JWCC in conjunction with what they already have to further the joint all-domain command and control efforts, JADC2. The big goal here really is data interoperability. So it was really interesting to hear how how cloud, how the different cloud vehicles are helping to facilitate that. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, it sounds like a fascinating conversation. So let's take a listen to your interview. So Don, to start off our conversation today, can you tell me a little bit about what you've been working on as Department of the Navy CTO and uh, how you see your work right now setting up the Navy to really carry IT modernization forward in the back half of the year? Sure. Um, so this this is a, a subtle distinction. The Department of the Navy, you know, bear in mind has has two military services, uh, the Navy and the Marine Corps. Uh, so sometimes people hear Navy and they think just U.S. Navy. It's it's both. Uh, as the Don CTO, what we have been working on in the first half of this year has been technical guidance, technology direction. The way that in the past we've gone about putting out technology direction as a Department of Defense. Uh, has been by writing these these uh, things called reference architectures. Uh, and they're written in a language called DODAF, which a lot of people are familiar with, but very few people actually like speak fluently. It's not a terrible like technical language for describing things. The problem is the people we need to describe those things to uh, really don't engage with, with DODAF architecture as a way of understanding what it is that we're trying to say in terms of what guardrails we need to create, you know, what objectives we need to set, and you know, to the extent we need to constrain methods, how we need to do that. Uh, 
So what we've started to do is build out technology direction in a different, also very complex technical language called English that a lot more of us speak. You know, and, and we're trying to put that direction to as many folks as possible who actually build stuff, contractors, people that are warfare centers, you know, the, the people in program offices, and not just technical people, everyone, right? The program managers, the, the business financial managers, the, the people who palm for things, right? The, uh, all of the roles that are involved in, in producing, delivering, sustaining capability, everybody's got to have the same sight picture of what it is we're actually trying to do. Uh, the, the Don has had this thing for, for a couple of years since uh, February of 2020 called the Information Superiority Vision. And it talks about modernize, innovate, and defend. And it, it has one goal, which is to securely move any information from anywhere to anywhere. Aaron Weiss called that the golden requirement. And it's, it's a super powerful single sentence statement that has packed into it a lot of stuff. What we did last September was we started to break that down into technology direction. And the first piece of direction we put out was called the capstone design concept for information superiority. So this is beginning to get after, well, well what specifically do we want to do? And, and, and it lays out uh, that one goal, securely move any information from anywhere to anywhere, uh, and breaks it down into three major objectives, each of which has or will soon have uh, a major design concept that describes that objective. So the three objectives are optimize the information environment for cloud. Uh, and we already have that design concept. We released it in January. And that talks about what is cloud? What does cloud mean? Why is this important? Uh, what are the subordinate objectives in there, like diversifying our means of transport? And, and, and you know, what are useful technology patterns to get after that without constraining very specifically how people are going to do that work. We need them all to have the same site picture of what those words mean. Uh, our other two major objectives are adopt enterprise services and implement zero trust. So just to talk about those briefly, uh, those two major design concepts are going to be coming out here in the next few weeks. Several drafts have been previewed of both documents publicly in a, in a, a broad TIM that I share. Uh, and, and we've gone through uh, a lot of iteration on them, and we're just about to release them. So adopt enterprise services as the second leg of our technology direction stool is really about giving enterprise services a better name. Uh, really, when we think about enterprise services in the Department of Defense, a lot of people, their stomach turns when they hear the term enterprise service. They think, oh, what you're going to do is you're going to take my money to pay for something I wouldn't choose to use and don't need. Uh, and in the past, we've committed that sin within DOD. We have, like, that's true. There's a reason why people are turned off by enterprise services. Our goal in, in Adopt Enterprise Services is really turning that trend around. We wanna find and reinforce and endorse the things that people choose to use as the best, brightest up and coming things that have the most strategic impact across the Department of the Navy. We want to make sure that we don't do one thing 10 different ways poorly. We do one thing that's really important one way really well, or a, a smaller number of ways really well. So that's, that's Adopt Enterprise Services. We do have our first 
enterprise service in the Department of the Navy. We, we designated it a few months ago. It's called the Naval Integrated Modeling Environment, uh, Naval IME. And it's a digital engineering platform for everyone to use. Uh, that's program offices, that's contractors, right? Uh, industry partners, academia, and of course, those of us in government trying to uh, lead these technology development efforts. Naval IME is about designing things iteratively, incrementally, and collaboratively. And part of the reason we designated Naval IME is because like 10,000 engineers were already using it. They'd stood it up under their own power, but they didn't have the support from the institution to make it what it really ought to be. So designation is really about reinforcing what people are doing that they like, that works, that they want to do, and directing others into that space. Uh, and then our third objective, implement zero trust. Um, I think, you know, anyone who kind of follows what we all do knows that Executive Order 14028 told us to do this, uh, NSM8 told us to do this, the FY22 NDAA section, uh, I want to say 1528, maybe getting that number wrong, uh, but Congress told us to do this. And, and as we do that work, uh, we in the Department of the Navy have been privileged to help stand up. The, the DOD Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office. I, I'm privileged to be a plank owner in that office. And we've worked with DOD to express uh, an understandable, measurable framework for Zero Trust, something that totally did not exist before. As we work through that, uh, what we're doing now in our major design concept is we're taking that framework and we're applying it to the Department of the Navy. Some things we do, we're going to have to do in a common way so that we're interoperable, even though we expect zero trusted or implementations to be inherently federated. Approaches will vary, but there are places where we have to meet, like identity. And so, the thing we've kind of done this year is uh, out and, and really worked hard to refine uh, naval identity services as a Dawn Enterprise service. So you, you begin to see where things cross-pollinate. Uh, Naval Identity Services uh, cloud-hosted. It also has to work in disconnected environments. Uh, we are positioning it as an enterprise service, uh, funding it centrally and maturing it to our own standards and criteria for enterprise services, which we've already published, uh, to hold ourselves accountable to only providing the best stuff to ourselves. And then uh, it, it is central uh, identity credential and access management. The stuff that Naval Identity Services does is central to Zero Trust. Because Zero Trust is all about uh, going from the old way, which is you know building ramparts around your network's castle walls and defending them vigorously, to uh, realizing that that way doesn't work, that your network, no matter how secure you think it is, is probably already compromised. And so have to treat every single exchange, every single request for data, applications, assets, and services as something that might be coming from an insider threat, might be coming from a nefarious actor. So, so in order to do zero trust, I say that finger quotes, do zero trust, one of the things you have to really do is move your perimeter from the, the perimeter of the network to being around the perimeter of the data or the service you're trying to protect. And identity uh, has to be known and knowable around that perimeter, no matter where you are. So that's kind of 
the broad technology strategy and direction that we've been putting out in the last year over the next several months as that direction hits and as uh, people are already implementing that direction, our work is gonna shift from setting the conditions for innovation to really managing uh, innovation. Because uh, last point here, innovation doesn't come from the top down. It, it really comes from the bottom up. It comes from the people turning wrenches on stuff. You know, the, the person doing the job knows best how to do the job. And that's where the great ideas come from. Uh, we just need to be you know, smart enough and capable of wiring those good ideas together for everyone's benefit and creating and setting the conditions where those good ideas can grow and thrive. So I, I think that's going to be you know, a lot of what we do in the latter half of this year. Uh, of course, we also have to figure out things like how do we operationalize and use JWCC for the promise it has? You know, how do we shift from the way we've done things in cloud in the past? You know, not that that's been bad, but you know, we have different tools and different approaches now. Uh, so we're we're really getting from good idea phase into operationalization phase. We're operationalizing all of this innovation that's happening all at once. Awesome. So it sounds like you guys have a lot going on. It sounds like a lot of these things are really going to require a lot of culture change, right? How is that factoring into how you guys are strategizing how to accomplish all of these initiatives from zero trust to enterprise services? Oh, well, I mean, yes. Uh, <laughs> culture, culture, yeah. Bottom line, yes. Yeah. Uh, culture change is, you know, a thing that, that, people in strategic leadership positions talk about in very poetic ways. Right. Um, absolutely essential to pulling off any sort of major change, right? I, I think it kind of starts with this. Our culture is what we do repeatedly and remind one another to do. Like, right. you know, the culture is, is our shared values, our shared practices and our repeated behaviors. So, so part of what we did uh, last September, when when we put out the capstone design concept, which is really kind of, you know, the tippy top of the Christmas tree, it's kind of the the the, the essential framework on which everything we think fits. Uh, part of what in there was we talked about what we value, talked about what we want to measure. People who have done defense uh, acquisition before have encountered things called KPPs and KSAs. Uh, those things kind of have a bad name, but the concepts are sound. And the concepts are, you might have a gazillion requirements for whatever it is that you're designing, developing, procuring, fielding, sustaining. Among those, some things are very, very key. Some things are important. Some things predict whether or not the, the missile that you're developing is going to fly far enough or kill the target it's intended to kill or go fast enough or be maneuverable enough, right? There are key things. And so we've tried to spell out culturally, what are the key things that's in the capstone? Uh, and it boils down to, to two things that we demand that everyone measure and four things that we demand that, that, that everyone consider. Uh, so it, it really comes down to is that we measure our customer experience and operational resilience. And, and uh, we've talked a lot about customer experience in DOD recently because of 
Yeah, uh, I, I think a very well-placed, well-timed thing that happened on social media that that all of us who do what I do, you know, paid a great deal of attention to really kind of shook the ground. You know, hey, just come on, just fix our computers, right? And, and that was uh, that was on point, right? Yeah. You took that to heart. But there are two things that, that we want to measure, right? One is customer experience. What's your day like? You know, what are we doing to actually improve? The, the things that you're doing through the technology that we're bringing, is it supporting you or is it holding you back, right? That's customer experience. We're not going to tell people how to measure customer experience, uh, although we will be involved in measuring it ourselves in some ways. We're not going to tell other people uh, who, you know, for your specific program or your specific portfolio, how you're going to measure customer experience. But we in the Don CIO, we are going to demand that you measure it. And we're right. going to ask you what your measures are and how you know that you're getting better or that you're not. Uh, and then the other thing that we're going to measure, because we value it, is operational resilience. Now, you can think of operational resilience is, does it work? Does it work actually on the worst day? Mm -hmm. And does it, does it continue to work as circumstances change? Uh, we think those two things actually work in concert, although some people would cast security and usability as at odds with one another. We don't. And we've gone way out of our way to say, those things don't work against one another. They work for one another. A more secure, more cyber secure, resilient capability is actually a capability that provides a, a superior customer experience. So those are kind of our two outcomes. Culturally, you know, creating a culture means, you know, and changing a culture means changing what you value and changing what you do, right? The things that we uh, demonstrate, behaviors, those, those underpin our culture. So we've stated these two outcomes. And then in the same document, we stated four attributes. If the two outcomes tell you if you're doing the right things, if you're improving your measures, you're doing the right things. The four attributes are all about, are you doing things in the right way? And, and you know, it's important to consider both because you could do the right things and still do them in a really terrible way. Mm -hmm. uh, so so those, those four things that we want people to have in the front of their mind all the time, dynamic, customer-focused, confidence-inspiring, and best value cost, not lowest cost, best value cost. And, you know, the, the capstone goes into like what we think those things mean. And we reinforce those things every chance we get. Every opportunity we have to talk to anybody kind of reinforce those things. Every time we're involved in reviewing programs or you know, standing anything up where we're trying to drive those, those metrics and those attributes into, into life, into reality. And I think people are starting to embrace that because we're starting to see it come back from the PEOs, from the program offices. When they talk about how they're managing their programs, they're using these words in the ways we intend. So we see that from PEO Digital uh, they've they've come up with something called world class alignment metrics. Uh, it's derived from from a, a different thing called outcome driven metrics. They, I think, pulled up from Gartner. But at the end of the day, uh, it's all couched in exactly what I just said. Are you improving customer experience? Are you improving operational resilience? And are you doing your work in the right ways? And, and you know that we measure that, that we value that. That's how we begin to change culture by beating that drum over and over again and changing people's behavior. So I want to be more specific than poetic. That's 
Sure. That's that's where I would leave it. That's, you know, I'm a technologist, right? I'm not a poet. Right. right. So I wanted to ask about the joint warfighting cloud capability contract. And I feel like this will probably play into the culture discussion a little bit too, because, you know, that that being awarded when the military services, combatant commands, you know, fourth estate are all already exploring their own cloud modernization efforts already have their own, you know, cloud stuff going on. And now we have JWCC coming into the mix. And, you know, presumably, like, there's going to be some challenges in terms of getting everyone on the same page and like integrating that into what the future DOD cloud ecosystem is supposed to look like, right? So I guess my question for you is, how do you see JWCC integrating with what the Navy is already doing from a cloud perspective? And and what kind of challenges do you anticipate? Are you already seeing? And how do you see JWCC kind of coming alongside to complement what the Navy is doing from a cloud perspective? I know that's a big question, but I'm genuinely- There's a lot. Yeah. There's, there's a lot to that question. So I'm going to ask you to come back if I miss something. But um, all right, let's start with what JWCC is. Because uh, the first challenge that I think we saw as uh, we were working with the ODCIO post-award, uh, coming up with some, you know, sort of initial guidance on how to how to use and get after JWCC is we found that there wasn't really a good broad consensus on what JWCC is and what it's not. So let's be clear. JWCC is a procurement vehicle, right? It's a way of buying cloud. It can also provide some help in provisioning. So, you know, actually instantiating cloud services or the environments in which they're they're offered. But that's not really it's it's, you know, sort of core competency. That's not really what it's about. That's 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 kind of trappings of that contract. Uh, it's a contract. So so first most important thing, let's start there. Very important contract, right? Having a multiple award contract with our largest cloud service providers and kind of resolving the ambiguity of how we're going to get after buying cloud, that is huge. That is uh, potentially transformative. And it has some, some good aspects to it, right? Uh, in principle, it should lead us to a good place on cost. It should provide us more visibility than we have had in the past over uh, how, what cloud we consume and what we actually pay for that. A lot of that today is hidden, and it's hidden in contracts that offer us cloud services as an ODC, another direct charge on uh, on a on a service contract or some obscure you know, provisioning procurement contract that an individual agency or, or you know, field activity let for themselves, right? So, so that visibility of, you know, what cloud are we actually provisioning and paying for uh, should, should, again, have, have positive outcomes, positive effects. Uh, and then potentially, uh, you know, JWCC will have some positive effects on us in terms of speed. Uh, if we already have the contract, we don't have to create it, that, that speeds us up. If, we already have authorized cloud services that we can simply invoke that should definitely speed us up, right? But it doesn't solve all of our problems. You can think of cloud as kind of, you know, there's a value stream to doing anything and there's a value stream to using the cloud. And provisioning and, and, and you know, procuring are 
know, early steps in that value stream. I, I need a way to let the contract uh, to buy cloud. Next thing on that list is I, I need a way to secure the cloud. The JWCC really doesn't, doesn't do a lot for us in that regard. It may open up the opportunity for us to consume common services, but we are still kind of on our own to do the things we've been doing all along. Uh, you know, like uh, uh, standing up security stacks to defend ourselves in the cloud, whether those are cloud native security stacks or kind of older designs. But we have to do that. You know, providing the secure space in which you can build and operate inside the cloud, and then actually providing the tools necessary to build for the cloud. But those are things that, you know, once again, like we still have to do that. And, uh, you know, none of this, while it is a multiple award contract, it doesn't inherently give us multi-cloud capability. It, it turns out to be really, really difficult to have a, uh, uh, an interoperable multi-cloud ecosystem. And so a lot of the hard work that we're doing and that we see, you know, our partners elsewhere in DOD, uh, DISA, DOD, CIO, starting to lead some things in this regard. It's about figuring out, okay, well, I've, I've got, I've got Azure and I've got AWS and I've got Google and Oracle, right? So how do I get my OCI and my AWS, Azure and, and my Google Cloud platform to work together? Uh, there are obvious but overly simplistic answers to that. Well, you know, just use Kubernetes. Well, Kubernetes is not magic. Uh, and, and it turns out to be very, very difficult in practice to uh, figure out how best to consume services from different cloud services, cloud service providers, excuse me, and you know how then to use them smartly and use them in a coordinated, uh, orchestrated way. I'll say that orchestrated. So we've still got a lot of work to do to figure it out. We also have to adjust from what we have done, which is not nothing, uh, to what we uh, will do using this new set of contracts. So the army, for example, already had something called camo that, uh, uh you know, buddy of mine, Paul Puckett led, uh, the ECMA in, in developing as an OTA, yeah. uh, other, uh, right. And, and, you know, it kind of comes bundled with not just the provisioning of cloud services, but also uh, a lot of that other stuff in the value stream that, that I talked about, right. And so we've got to we've got to pull that apart a bit. We're probably still going to use that to a point, and then we've got to figure out how to shift from using that to using JWCC. And right. oh, by the way, as, as you do that, you don't want to reprovision everything that you've had before, right? right. So, so right. how do we shift from you know how do we shift the bill without recreating the thing? That's, right. You know, and all of that, and then finally, I would say apart from shifting procurements and consolidating and extending our command and control over all this stuff, we, we really have to figure out all the other business processes because we're just starting to use uh, JWCC as a broad vehicle, right? So it's going to have benefits. It's going to be great, but we've still got a lot of work to do to figure out and realize all that value. Yeah. Well, so I actually talked to Paul Puckett just last week and he recommended that I talk to you about this because he said that you would have a you know great perspective on all of this um, from the Navy. And he talked about camo a little bit too, about how like, you know, camo basically, basically does what JWCC is supposed to do. So it's a, 
you know, when trying to like figure out how to use JWCC, it's, you know, it's a little complicated in terms of balancing these different procurement vehicles. Um, so I guess my follow-up question for you would be, is it going to be like, do you see challenges around, you know, trying to identify what to do, what cloud services to procure through JWCC, what not to procure through JWCC? Uh, do you guys see JWCC as more of like a, like a standard for how to go about procuring cloud services rather than like a mandated, everything has to be purchased through this particular contracting vehicle? Hmm. We have not seen yet anything that looks and smells like a hard mandate. And yeah. I think what what that means is DOD CIO uh, acknowledges the complexity of shifting from, you know, for the Army, shifting from Canada, or for the Air Force, shifting from the approach they've used under Cloud One. Uh, you know, for us in the Navy, you know, we're just kind of getting after this thing we're calling the, the Neptune Cloud Management Office that is trying to consolidate all expertise and support that people need to, to get to the cloud on scale, at scale and on mass. My sense, you know, from discussing it with other leaders in DOD, right? Uh, Lily Zalecki, uh, the Honorable Mr. Sherman, right? And and then within Don CIO, right? Uh, uh, Ms. Rathbun and, and Mike Galbraith and others is uh, kind of our shared site picture is, we don't think that a mandate is appropriate, at least not right now. What we need to do is figure out what are all those processes I talked about? You know, what are all the steps in the value chain? And we need to use JWCC and use the heck out of it where it makes sense. Uh, you know, right now, immediately, that's like new things, right? If, if you're not in the cloud and you're moving to the cloud, there's probably not a great argument for not procuring cloud through JWCC. Right. Um, now, there may be some you know, one-off exceptions where, well, what I needed was the cloud service and this technical service that I can't get through JWCC, for example. Uh, okay, right? Those things are gonna happen. But broadly speaking, like our, our, our argument within the Don about enterprise services, I think we have to see JWCC as an enterprise service and one that you don't wanna tell people to use, you want people to want to use it. So, yes, big contract, great team, you know, uh, you know, Ryan MacArthur and that, that whole team have done fantastic work, you know, bringing us a, a contract vehicle that's going to be very relevant to us and that we need. Um, but we also have to be patient as that team stands up and begins to really operate for real and for true because they're new too. And you know, they need time to mature as a as an enterprise service provider. They have definite ideas about how to do cool things, you know, and some tools around that and some services around that. But we've also got to give them the runtime they need to, to get good at it because no service provider stands up today and is great tomorrow. So uh, that's that's kind of my, my site picture of that. Gotcha. Yeah, that does help clear some things up. So I feel like JWCC and all of the zero trust initiatives that you guys have going on are going to be really important for making JADC2 a reality, right? And yes. the I feel like the crux of JADC2 really comes down to 
data interoperability and, you know, information exchange. I mean, I know people like to talk about it like it's connecting sensor to shooter. And I know that's definitely a part of it. But I feel like when people talk about JADC2, they're kind of missing the point when they boil it down to that like one liner, because uh-huh. at least in my understanding, it's more about making sure the right person has the right information at the right time to, you know, complete the mission. And there aren't any barriers to them getting that information and getting it securely. So from your perspective, when it comes to data interoperability for JADC2, you need the data to be discoverable, right? Like people need to know where they can find it. And it seems like that's been a challenge in in DOD for a while, because it's not like you can just like Google search something in terms of like DOD's data repositories. So my question is, how do you see uh, the ongoing cloud efforts that are going on at the service levels and then, you know, with JWCC and uh, ongoing um, zero trust efforts working together to create that environment where data is discoverable and it can be securely shared to make JADC2 a reality? Great question. There's a lot built into that. Let me let me address some of the efforts that are ongoing now. This will not be a complete list of everything we need to do to get after that, but you're right about the target. You're right about what we need to do. Uh, the way we think of this in the Don and the way we've encouraged others to think of it is you can, you can think of the challenge as uh, interoperable data-centric security and shifting away from network-centric security models and adopting data-centric security models. That sounds great, right? Like, okay, we're going to go from defending the ramparts of the network and you know stationing pikemen at the gates, and you know preventing bad people from coming in, and they're therefore feeling like we're safe, to recognizing the reality that somebody's probably already inside the castle. That's just the start, though. A data-centric security model. And and that's probably the best shorthand for it, as opposed to zero trust, no offense to zero trust. But the shorthand for the problem set that you're describing that we use is shifting to a data-centric security model uh, because it's more encompassing of of the holistic problem. Uh, And that is uh, when, when we are deployed as the Navy, as the Navy and the Marine Corps, as the Navy and the Marine Corps and the Air Force, you know, in a particular theater of operations. And we're all doing the same thing where we're applying our protections right around the data. And we're understanding identity and access at that point in time, you know, in a way that's informed by policy, that's informed by by technology and uh, actually watching people's behaviors and finding things that are that are aberrations in behavior patterns as a security mechanism. That's layering a lot of stuff onto uh, a thread of activity at the edge uh, that many times can ill afford it. And so we're kind of working through those, those challenges now. I wouldn't say we have great solutions for all of them, but I would say that uh, Joint Staff J6 has, has led in very significant ways here. So. Uh, part of that is so far we've had two conferences called Site Security Interoperability in the Tactical Environment. The last one, uh, we were smart enough to include our, our coalition partners in that and start to learn from them just as we're learning from each other. Uh, those conferences should continue because 
we all have uh, significant work to do to figure out not only how to do this for ourselves, one each, but across ourselves for every. That's it's really, really challenging. The other thing that's, I think, a key, uh, a key initiative here uh, is something called Joint Operational Edge Cloud, just starting to get after that. And we in the Department of the Navy uh, are bringing on board this, this effort that we're doing, initiative that we're doing called Last Mile. Uh, it's very similar to Joint Operational Edge Cloud, but really focused on our flank speed environment, where Joint Operational Edge Cloud is about all of the JWCC vendors and all of their environments in a tactical space. So we're giving ourselves the opportunity to talk to one another, to learn from one another, and to figure this out together. Uh, what's important, I think, right now is continuing that. Uh, we need to continue a series of engagements that, that we've had around those topics, around data-centric security and interoperability, because it, it is just a fact that the way that we do it in the Department of the Navy is probably not going to be just one way. It's probably going to be one way aboard ships and, you know, one way at an expeditionary advanced base and yet a third way, you know, at an operational facility somewhat further back from the, the forward edge, right? So we're large and complex enough. We're going to have multiple ways of doing it. And then we've got to deal with the reality that the Air Force is going to have a way of doing it, maybe more than one that uh, you know, our ICAM systems are gonna have to work together, that our data services are gonna have to be able to talk to one another, that we're gonna have to have, you know, oh, by the way, a, a, a shared standard for how we tag and understand access to data. Now, there are standards that are maybe applicable there. Uh, I would point you at OpenTDF as one, and you know, uh, maybe ZACMO is another, but, uh, you know, those those standards exist, but that doesn't mean we've worked out all the rules and details for ourselves as communities about how we're going to use those standards, right? So so I can use Open Policy Agent and Open TDF just as anyone else can, but as, if, if we haven't figured out our own human processes around how we're going to discover and tag and share, you know, and share tags with one another uh, and, and respect one another's boundaries, Right. Uh, none of that works. So so we've got to continue our engagements uh, with the site summits. I think those are critical. Uh, there's there's a, a thing that we do also called MPE interoperability initiative or MII experiments. Critically important here, uh, especially since MPE is it is is meant to be a data centric security environment, uh, mission partner environment meant to be a data centric security environment. You know, and and there are different approaches, even in the in the the guidance that uh, DOD CIO through the Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office has put out about how to implement zero trust. There are different approaches that we recognize we're all going to take, right? So uh, you know, there's kind of a, a broadly they describe in, in terms of strategy. There's a brownfield code. Start where you are. Build on that. We've seen great success in some quarters of DOD on that. You know, Second uh, Infantry Division in the Army has done really great work there. Really advanced their own game. Uh, you know, in a super profound way. Uh, Transcom, you know, uses the tools that they already had, the stuff they already paid for, and they kind of apply zero trust approach using existing tools. Same thing that Second ID did. 
uh, and it's kind of zero trust on the cheap, but works super well, works super well. But it's going to be different than uh, somebody who's doing broadly, you know, what I think we're paving the way on in the Department of the Navy through flank speed, which uh, the ZTPFMO would describe as their COA2, uh, which is cloud native, right? Uh, Greenfield from cloud. Uh, so what we do in our Azure environment today uh, in flank speed is a zero trust approach from the ground up, has been from the beginning. Uh, and it actually predates some of this, you know, DOD framework guidance, and it helps to inform some of that guidance. So, you know, to the extent we're able to do things like that out at or near the tactical edge through our last mile initiatives and, you know, working with DOD on joint operational edge cloud, right? That's a second way things might happen. And then there's kind of a third way, uh, which I talked about mission partner environment. Mission partner environment is uh, Sabre uh, is built on uh, what the DOD Zero Trust PFMO would call COA3, which is Greenfield uh, Government Private Cloud. Uh, they, they've, they've, they've done a lot of work. And I say they, what I'm talking about is uh, the NSA and Cybercom, uh, US Cyber Command through uh, something called Dreamport has, has done a lot of groundbreaking work in just figuring out what could be done in a zero trust way using off the shelf tools in a government owned, you know, private cloud sort of setting. Uh, and that is the basis for the design of, uh, you know, MPE going forward right now. That's their, that's their, that's their design template. So we will definitely have multiple ways of doing data-centric security. Uh, and that's without me even addressing the fact that we haven't really figured out uh, data services that extend all the way out to the edge broadly. I mean, there are some obviously, but uh, you know, we haven't focused on that in years past the way we focused on cloud to get us get ourselves to this point. So, you know, I think in DOD, you're also going to see uh, this upcoming year kind of being the year of data. Uh, and that's driven by Joint Staff J6. That's driven by DOD CIO, uh, the CDAO and others realizing that this is a critical challenge. This is the critical challenge. And, and our strength, our strength as, as an American military has always been in allowing people uh, to pursue mission type orders that are that are that are drafted based upon commander's intent and to do that creatively, to do that in an innovative fashion within left and right lateral limits that we establish. As a technologist, you know, the, the corollary there is the left and right lateral limits are the standards that we all agree to. And uh, you know, the the objectives that we set. And that creates the conditions within which subordinate commanders can innovate. The subordinate commanders in this case are the people developing these capabilities, the people testing them, the people uh, refining them, uh, whether that's within the United States government or within partner nations. So all of that's ultimately got to work together. We've got to continue the fight. We've got to continue the drumbeat uh, with sight. Uh, we've got to continue the drumbeat through the, the other JADC2 engagements. And we all have to work together. I've, I've mentioned so many different entities here you know, from, from foreign partners to mission partner environment to, 
you know, uh, DOD's uh, CDAO, right? The DOD uh, ZTPFMO within DOD CIO, uh, our partners in the Air Force and the Army, and then lots of different pieces, uh, Navy and Marine Corps within the Department of the Navy. All those things have to work together. No one wins alone. We only win together. So that I think is the broad answer to your question. I know it's unsatisfying. I know it's not a complete template of how we're going to get there, but it's the best answer I can give you. Yeah, sure. Totally get that. And yeah, I think that really does shed some light on the best way to approach the problem. So in terms of next steps, you are not going to be at the Navy for much longer. You're moving into a position at DHS. So what are you hoping to accomplish? How are you hoping to leave the Department of the Navy and specifically the office of the CIO? Uh, what kind of state are you hoping to leave it in so that they can continue this momentum when you move on to DHS? Well, I think I think as I leave, part of the reason I feel free to leave is because the teams, all of those teams I just mentioned, have done really great work. And all the stuff I talked about, it's all happened in the last year, right? So uh, I think the Department of the Navy and DOD are in capable hands. Yeah, I'm not selling myself short. I've, I've been a key leader, but uh, I'm certainly not the only one who can continue to iterate on this technical vision that we've talked about here for an hour. There are so many other smart, capable people in the department. I don't want to get out ahead of my leadership in Don CIO, but I will say I've, I've given them my thoughts on who ought to step in and act as the Don CTO after I depart. I think those thoughts will be heavily weighted. And I, you know, regardless of what direction they go, uh, I think the, the Department of the Navy will, will be in capable hands. They will have a CTO who will not only continue, but continue to make us better. As far as the Department of Homeland Security, I uh, competed for and, and uh, was ultimately offered a position uh, at DHS uh, headquarters as part of the CISO directorate. I can tell you that the position title is uh, director of the National Security Cyber Division. Careful not with the National Cybersecurity Division and CSD, which is an entity within one of DHS's agencies, CISA. Uh, they do great work, uh, nothing against them, that's not where I'm going. I'm going to DHS headquarters uh, and I will be the director of the National Security Cyber Division. Uh, I'm not there yet, I can't say much about uh, what my role will be, but I have been told some things. Among the things I've been told is that I will help to, you know, kind of build that organization up. Uh, that you know, within that portfolio are national security services and systems from across DHS, from all of the DHS agencies, and that uh, I, I'm expected to continue to lead and partner with DoD in certain ways, uh, including all this data-centric security that we have to figure out not just as a DoD for warfighting, but as a federal enterprise that has a, a secret fabric uh, and classified fabrics that really desperately need to be updated as well. Uh, and that I've, I've been uh, also tasked to lead in terms of zero trust because we're all new at zero trust uh, across the whole federal space. And 
you know, DOD has done a lot to lead the way across the federal government. I think that the DHS is looking to capitalize on that uh, in part by, by bringing me onto the team. So I'm honored to uh, continue to serve and continue to partner with, uh, you know, folks in DOD and the Department of the Navy as I do that. Uh, beyond that, there's not a whole lot I can say about uh, about that new role, and, and I wouldn't want to get out ahead of my own skis by trying to predict what that will be. But certainly critical to our capability as a nation to compete is all of the critical infrastructure and the national security systems that are everywhere else, not just within the Department of Defense, uh, upon which we definitely depend for our daily lives. You know, things like, you know, in, in that portfolio, you have TSA, you have, you have port operations, you have border security, you have uh, just a number of highly critical domestic missions that are every bit the target that our defense missions are when it comes to competition, crisis, and conflict in the cyber domain. Awesome. So, one last question before we wrap up here. Can you tell me a little bit about how this new position with DHS came about and what you're most excited about going into this new position and how you're going to use what you've learned at Department of the Navy to launch this new position at DHS? Sure. Uh, it, it, it came about the way many federal positions come about. It was, it was publicly competed. I competed for it. Uh, I competed for it because I found it compelling, in part because it's it's a new mission. It's a different mission than the one that I have devoted myself to for 21 years now. And, and at some point in our lives, you know, we all kind of look for a change. And uh, so as I have been, you know, and I, I advise everyone to do this constantly, think about the next step for yourself, right? As I had been doing that, I came, I became aware of this opportunity and competed for it. And, and was fortunate enough to win. I'm excited about it uh, because it's a mission, but also because, you know, my understanding from the work I've done as the Don CTO, that's allowed me to poke my head above the waterline a little bit and look out at the rest of the federal government, our partners in the intelligence community and other federal agencies, et cetera. And uh, what I've seen convinces me that DOD really is in a better position broadly than than the rest of us. And so I feel like there's more help needed out there than there is, uh, you know, continuing to do what I do, I'll say in here in finger quotes, within the Don, within DOD. It is, it is tempting to just keep playing for uh, a team that's winning right now and keep running up the score. But for me personally, and this is kind of a tragic flaw, it's just it's part of who I am. Uh, I tilt windmills. I I attack targets that deserve to be attacked, that no one else thinks are vulnerable to attack, and, 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 and targets that we absolutely must knock down. I can't resist that. I've gone to war as a civilian three times in my life because of that tendency, and I feel in my heart like that's what I'm doing here again. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very motivating, and I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. It was also a very hard decision because I love what I do. I, I am having a blast. Uh, you know, how many people get to say they had the opportunity to serve as the chief technology officer of the Navy? Not many. What a great opportunity as a human being. You know, how could you ever walk away from that? 
Yeah. Uh, and so that was a very hard decision to decide, yeah. well, it's time. Right. But you know what? It's time. Yeah. Just as a follow up to that, I feel like a lot of the times people can be in the position where they're like, is it time for a change? Is it time to go? I don't know, because it's been really great so far. What were some of the things that you thought about and tried to, you know, make a decision to move on to something else? Well, uh, this is personal, but I don't mind, you know, being transparent. It's, it's how I try to live my life. I, I went directly from uh, serving in Afghanistan from 2018 to the middle of 2019, uh, July, August 29th. I came home from Afghanistan for the last time in, in July of 2019. And when I came home back to my parent command at the time, they didn't really have uh, a position exactly like the one I'd left to go serve in Afghanistan. And uh, uh, the executive director at, at the agency where I was working at the time asked me to go work with his, uh, his friend, someone he'd known as a Marine for a very long time, and someone who's become a very dear friend and mentor of mine, uh, at the time Brigadier General, now Major General Lorna Malik. Uh, Mr. Reddy, uh, Pete Reddy, asked me to, to to go work with her directly and help her out. Uh, none of us were exactly clear on on really what would be involved in that, and that turned into a very fast paced, you know, uh, very high op tempo uh, assignment, where you know, among other things, I led the team that helped create the very first Marine Corps Enterprise Network modernization plan, and that was just exhausting. And we were in the process of doing that again, when as a result of, you know, various leadership turnovers and just an opportunity arose, uh, Ms. Jane Rathbun asked me to come and serve in the Don CIO and kind of bring some of the, some of that, you know, Marine initiative and know-how uh, and apply it across the Department of the Navy. And I was super excited to do that. Like, who would, who would say no to that? So I went and I did that. And, you know, I just described to you for an hour some of the great things. That, that we've done in the CTO team over that time. But with all that said, this has been a sprint that's turned into a marathon. And, uh, you know, going from, you know, doing a, a, you know, a very challenging job in Afghanistan to doing a very challenging job at headquarters Marine Corps C4 to doing a very challenging job in Don CIO. Part of the reason that I'm led to deciding that it's really time for a, a large change is assignments like these, you can't serve in them forever. You, you know, even if you love it, and I love it, it'll wear you down. And sometimes to recharge your batteries, what you really need is you need a change of scenery and you need a new mission. Yeah. And, you know, so that uh, I think more than anything else really informs the timing for me, you know, I, for a lot of the time I just described to you, I was away from home. I was obviously away from home in Afghanistan. All but one year of my time inside the Pentagon, I've lived somewhere else and traveled up here every other week. That will just wear you down. And even though I live in the area now, you know, it's just been uh, a grind. And I don't ever want my service in the dawn to the Marine Corps, right? You know, these are people who I love. These are organizations that I love. I don't ever want that to turn into something that I become resentful toward. And I think if I continued at that pace for 
very much longer, you know, that kind of that kind of situation could start to happen. So, you know, it's it's time for a change. It's time to think about doing something new. As Paul Puckett would say, you know, maybe it's time to go suck at something else. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I feel like that's a great note to end this on. Thank you so much for chatting with me about this today, Don. And again, congratulations on your new position. And I hope we'll be able to hear more from you from the DHS side soon. Okay, definitely. And thank you so much for asking. Really yeah, appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Kate. Before we wrap up our podcast today, are there any last highlights or takeaways you want to leave the listener with? IT is important. I think that was honestly a really big takeaway from this conversation. You know, it's it's important to make the proper investments in our IT because it really does impact people's day-to-day lives and their ability to do their jobs. And sometimes, you know, it can be life or death. It can make or break a mission success. So I think that was probably the biggest takeaway, honestly. Definitely. I couldn't have put it better myself. Well, thank you, Kate. Listeners can tune in next week for a brand new GovCast. But until then, thank you for listening. Please leave a review on the podcast platform of your choice. And hey, if you like what you heard, tell someone. We always appreciate new listeners. I'm Alexander Bolova. I'm Kate Macri. Thank you for listening. GovCast, along with HealthCast and CyberCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. If you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at govcio.com. 